0: This is the 10,000 depositions later podcast, episode 61. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode lessons from the front lines, a judges all in one guide to the right and wrong ways to make deposition objections. So I ran across a brand new order from a federal judge where he talks about the purpose of depositions, the purpose of objections, the language of the rule about how objections should be stated concisely non argumentatively, and in a way that doesn't suggest the answer, as well as the strict limitations on the ability to instruct the witness not to answer. I think we counted 56 different authorities cited by this judge on these basic points in a single order. Now keep in mind that this is a brand new court ruling. So it's possible that one or more lawyers in the case will ask for reconsideration or rehearing that the court will reconsider its ruling on its own, or that there might even be an appeal. The case in which this order was issued is still open and active. So we always like to note when we bring new decisions to your attention, that they are in fact hot off the presses, and something might change down the road. So I'll talk in a minute about how the dispute evolved and how the court resolved it. And I'm also going to share at the end of the episode, some practical thoughts about how this kind of dispute can be avoided and what you should do differently to avoid this kind of problem. The decision uh, at hand, which I'll refer to as the Mitner decision, MIT NOR, was issued by a federal magistrate judge who's been on the bench for about three years. And you know, my observation about new federal judges in particular, because the majority of their rulings are in writing and not announced verbally in a hearing, is that in their early years after appointment, they will often issue orders that are essentially white papers, detailed research papers on a given point of law. And my personal theory has always been that new judges do this because if they are new to the bench, they'll need resources themselves on the basic issues that come up on a regular basis. So to me, this order falls into that category. It's a great primer on objections in depositions and a great case to have not only in your research file, but at your fingertips in deposition. So I'm passing this along, not because it contains shocking revelations about how to make or defend against objections, but because it's essentially a complete primer on the basics of what I would call objection practice, all nicely captured in a single court ruling. The full case citation is in the show notes, along with the docket numbers for the various filings relating to the issue. So this deposition dispute arose in a breach of contract case between a company that does business under the name ServPro and a Florida condominium that suffered severe damage from a Category 5 hurricane in 2018. ServPro in the lawsuit alleges it was hired to perform remediation, cleaning and construction services to repair the damage and alleges that it wasn't paid for its services. So that's the basic background of the case. So the lawyer for ServePro serves a notice in July for a corporate representative deposition under rule 30B6, uh, which lists 15 different topics for the corporation to produce a witness or witnesses to testify about. And the defendant in this case produced two or three designees to testify about those 15 issues. And it was in the context of these 30B6 depositions where the dispute over defense counsel's conduct arose and here's a blurb from the court's ruling on that. Quote, while conducting the depositions of a corporate representative, counsel for defendants made speaking objections, included in her objections the answers that she believed would be appropriate for the deponent and interrupted the attorney who was conducting the examination of the deponent. Because such conduct violates Rule 30C2 of the Federal Rules of a Civil Procedure, the plaintiff requests that this court order a second deposition of the corporate representative and instruct Defendants' counsel not to continue to violate Rule 30C2 at subsequent depositions. And the court goes on to say, for the reasons set forth below, the motion is granted. And here's an example. Uh, When plaintiff's counsel asked the 30B6 designee, when the entity first hired its counsel, defense counsel is alleged to have said, quote, as the association, you don't know when you hired her. So what I'm saying is, that's not the topic that she's prepared to bind the corporation today," end quote. Other complaints by plaintiff's counsel is that the uh, lawyer representing the defendants interjected lengthy objections and arguments to disrupt the deposition and coach the witness, made complaints about the questions being asked, asserted objections that defense counsel herself didn't understand the question or that the witness might be confused, made commentary or argument that the witness wasn't prepared to testify on a personal basis to questions that went beyond the listed topics on the deposition notice, made objections that the questions asked of the 30B-6 designee were going beyond the listed topics, and argued about which questions related to which topics. These depositions were noticed for mid-July and on July 27 plaintiff's counsel filed a motion styled as an emergency motion to compel and for an order prohibiting speaking objections and interference with completing defendant's deposition. Long story short, as I indicated, the judge granted the motion to allow an additional 30B-6 deposition and urged the lawyers to take heed of the court's discussion of the proper way to make objections. Now, what do I think could have been done differently here on both sides to make this thing go a little more smoothly? Well, on the plaintiff's side, I would have included language in my 30B6 deposition notice that made it crystal clear that I would, apart from the topics, also question the produced designees about any other topics regarding which those designees might have personal knowledge. So I put that in my corporate representative deposition notices, all of them. My notices say Uh, dot 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 corporate representative designated by defendant to testify pursuant to federal rule 30 b six or whatever the state equivalent is about the topics listed in exhibit a attached here to and about any other topics regarding which the witness or witnesses had or may have personal knowledge and that does two things first it puts the defending lawyer on notice of my plan so if they want to object They can give me a buzz as soon as they get my notice. Now, of course, some lawyers don't actually read these deposition notices, I can't help that. Even if they don't read it, that language is going to benefit me if a dispute arises and we have to involve the judge. It's completely proper for you in a 30B6 deposition to ask any of the designees questions that go beyond your listed topics and regarding which the witness may have personal knowledge. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that I don't have to put that additional language in my notices but i do just as an insurance policy second if i'm going to ask questions that go beyond the listed topics for which the organization was obligated to prepare the witness i will usually ask those questions from personal knowledge of the designee at the beginning or at the end of the 30b6 deposition but wherever i stick that set of questions in the deposition i'm going to announce on the record to the defense that the next set of questions will be to the witness individually based on his or her own personal knowledge and that the questions are likely to go beyond the scope of the listed topics. Why do I do that? Well, I don't want to intermingle questions for which I want answers to bind the entity and answers that are going to come from the witness personally. The real power of a 30B6 deposition is that your witness is speaking as the voice of the organization. So the transcript will become very messy, maybe even unusable to the extent that you want to use it to pin down the entity if you're mixing in or sprinkling in some questions intended for the designee speaking as the voice of the company and some questions intended for the designee in a personal capacity. I never want there to be any confusion about which questions bind who. So if I've got questions that I'm going to direct to the witness personally, for the witness to answer individually and not as the voice of the organization, I always say something on the record to indicate that this next set of questions is directed to the witness personally. In other words, I never want to put the opposing lawyer in a position where they can make a compelling argument to the court that a killer answer that would put the entity in a bad position was actually the witness's own personal opinion. So segregate or wall off your questions in a 30B6 deposition so that you, the witness, the opposing lawyer, and the judge can easily tell which questions were put to the designee to speak as the voice of the organization and which were put to the witness to answer personally. All right, what else? Well, whether you're taking or defending a 30B6 deposition or whatever the rule is under your state analog, you've got to understand the rules that apply. One of the objections made here that bogged the deposition down and required court intervention was that some of the questions were beyond the scope of the listed topics and perhaps somehow were improper. That is clearly wrong. The overwhelming weight of authority across the country, state and federal, is that you can go beyond the listed topics in a 30B6 deposition. Some courts even go so far as to say the topic list is a mere starting point. So there was just no reason here for that to become an issue that disrupted the testimony. Now, on a related note, if you're defending a 30B-6 deposition, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that you have to prepare your designees not only to speak as the voice of the organization, but you have to prepare them on a personal level as well. At one point in the plaintiff's emergency motion here, it's document uh, 24 in the federal ECF system, page six. The defense lawyer allegedly said the following quote he's not prepared to be deposed on a personal basis today now let me repeat that he's not prepared to be deposed on a personal basis today that's a serious problem in my opinion a corporate designee as i've discussed can be asked questions that require the witness to speak personally not on behalf of the entity so if you're going to defend a 30b6 deposition You have to choose your designees very carefully. There are lots of issues buried into that selection. Who, how many, on what topics, and many more issues you've got to think about. As part of your selection of your designee or designees, you've got to know what the witnesses can also attest to personally. And you never want to be in a position where you haven't prepared each of your designees about topics that they might be asked to speak about from personal knowledge as if it was merely their own deposition. When I prepare 30B6 designees, I give great thought to whether the person I'm selecting might have personal knowledge that could open a can of worms for the organization that could be very damaging to my client. Remember, I get to choose the designees, not the examining lawyer. But when I choose them, I'm going to prepare my designees on two levels. One, on the topics for which they are going to speak as the voice of authority for the organization. And two, I'm going to prepare them as well as if they are being deposed on a personal level. You've got to be ready for both lines of attack because if the examining lawyer knows what they're doing, they're going to come at you from both angles. All right, a couple of other points mentioning. I might have to lay down after thinking about that. The idea that a 30B6 would not be prepared on a personal level as well. A right, couple of other points worth mentioning, and then we'll wrap up. One, to the extent that a lawyer interrupts an examination and says, I-, I don't understand your question, that's never a proper basis to speak up, and it's not a proper objection. I covered that uh, thoroughly in episode 44 and there are supporting cases in the show notes in that episode, if you want to dial back there. Same thing with a lawyer blurting out that a witness is confused about the question. Mr. Jones, I don't think that Miss Williams understands what you're asking. That's the province of the witness to say I'm confused or I don't understand, not a lawyer's. The courts have said that's a form of coaching because it can be a signal to the witness that they might wanna act like they don't understand the question. Now, I obviously don't know the lawyers involved in the Mitner case, so I can't express any views on why they said the things they said or why they took the positions they did. I can only speak in general terms about how the courts have ruled on these kinds of things and the best practices approach to dealing with these issues. All right. So there you have it. The full case citation to Mitner is listed in the show notes for this episode, along with the individual filings and their docket number on the federal docket in PACER. One last thing I'd ask from you if you haven't yet left us a positive review or a five star rating, wherever you get your podcast, would you mind taking a minute and just going to the app wherever you get it and leave us a five star review. And if you want, maybe a positive comment or two. That's really the only way you can say thanks for the work that our staff does in putting together these episodes. And I assure you every time it makes all the difference in the world to them. They check every day to see how those ratings are growing. So thank you in advance. If you don't mind doing it. Have a great day.